Hi, I'm Mike Morris. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. Today, we have two very interesting people on, Jake Halpern and Ned Timmons. Jake is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, best-selling author and journalist. He's written books, Braving Home, Fame Junkies, Bad Paper, book Dormia, another book, Nightfall. He's got a podcast right now with Ned Timmons, who you'll remember from episode 30 of the Open Mic podcast called Deep Cover that has tons of favorable reviews. It's all over the podcast channels. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all things uh, Ned Timmons and get to know Jake uh, very well. So let's welcome him onto the Open Mic Podcast. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Hey, thanks for having me. Jake, thanks for being here, man. Uh, tell us, tell our audience where you're phoning in from right now. You, but behind me, you see the woods of New England. I'm up, uh, we're up in Western Massachusetts in Great Barrington, uh, you know, visiting my parents and uh, it's awesome. I can just get right in there and uh, talk to you guys over in Michigan. Well, thanks for being with us. I'm, you know, I was listening to your podcast this morning. I'm looking at all these uh, amazing books and uh, that you've written. Um, one of them caught my eye because uh from my materials, it shows that it's kind of like a, uh, not a Harry Potter series, but people are saying, if you like Harry Potter, you'll like the book Dormia. And my 12 year old and I are reading the Harry Potter series. As we speak, we finished book four last night. Tell me about, tell me about the book Dormia. Well, you know, it began because so I'm a journalist, right? And I had always grown up loving those fantasy books. And I told my wife again and again, one of these days I'm going to write it. And she said to me, I have this chance to go out to the Navajo reservation in New Mexico and practice medicine for a year. And I said, what am I going to do? There's like not that many stories I, I could find out there. And she said, oh, you're going to write that fantasy book you always talked about. So she kind of called my bluff. And then I spent about a year and a half co-writing that book. Actually, it was crazy because my co-author was in the State Department and he was in Paris and we just did it by sending back and forth the Google Doc. But it was this really imaginative world and I enjoyed it because as a journalist, you're always fact-checking. You're always making sure that every last detail is right and you get exhausted by it and then it was fun to just take that those reins off and just anything you want goes. That's great. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading it. I'm gonna when I'm done with uh, the Harry Potter books, which could take a long time. It book could. four took me a long time. Took us a long time to get through. So I, I'm excited. Um, you know, you write for New York Times Magazine and the Atlantic Monthly and Wall Street Journal and Sports Illustrated. I'm, I mean, there's dozens of of uh, publications, and I see that you're teaching at Yale University at the Morse College. No relation, although. You know, maybe there is a relation. Um, so you're you're a teacher. How's that? How's how's that being a professor? You know, I like it. I think that like I always joke with my wife the danger of being a writer. Like that scene. You remember the scene in in The Shining where Jack Nicholson is typing away on his typewriter, and his wife goes down the stairs and looks at what he's been writing, and it's all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and you right. realize like this guy has lost his effing mind. I feel like as a writer working in 
you know, relative isolation, you're always in danger of becoming Jack Nicholson. And <laughs> the beauty of the teaching is that it gets you out of your head and you're interacting with the students and you're, um, you're just having that, that, that give and take. And it's very like inspiring to be around young people. And so for me, it, it really keeps me sane and I really enjoy it for that reason. That's, that's great. I read, uh, you know, your bio is very extensive, but something that's obviously impressive is that you won the Pulitzer Prize in, in 2018, which very few people uh, win. It's a very coveted award. Um, tell me about that story. Tell me about, uh, you know, how you won it. And um, let's go through that because, you know, I've never interviewed a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author or anybody before. So let's let's hear about that. Well, first of all, just to take a little of the glamour off it. I mean, I, I'm a freelancer too, which means that for years I really just, you know, kind of hustled and scrapped together. I'm like an independent contractor. I'm like the guy that, you know, fixes roofs on houses and goes one job to another. I just happen to do it with writing. And there've been years where it's been busy and I've gotten good work. And there's been years where it's been thin and where um, I just think like, am I in this for, Am I going to be able to do this for the long haul? This story was kind of unusual. I, I'm a I'm a kind of jack of all trades, as, as you've kind of hinted at. I do the fantasy writing. I do podcasts. And I had an editor from the Times uh, ask me, would you have any interest in doing a graphic narrative? We want to run a story about refugees coming to this country, kind of like a true comic. And I said, yeah, that sounds cool, but I don't draw. And he said, no, 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 we'll find an illustrator you would just be the journalist who follows this family around and we would, you know, basically like serialize every other week, you'd kind of keep tabs on them. So there was a family that I found through a refugee resettlement agency that was landing in the US on, on election day. This is back in 2016. And so I thought, okay, I'll just show up when they land and see how it goes. And I showed up, they landed. Um, and that night I, and the only part of the family made it. Part of the family was still back in Jordan. And they were supposed to be joined, I don't know, a few months later. Anyway, that night, the election plans that pans out differently than than everyone or that all these liberal and intelligentsia types that I work with at the Times and predicted. And Trump ends up winning. And so I thought, wow, this is really interesting because this family kind of landed in one country and woke up in another. Like, regardless of what your politics are life had changed for this family and the prospect of the rest of the family joining them had greatly diminished. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I wonder if I could just follow this family. And so I did, I followed them for the better part. Well, now it's been almost four years and they ended up being just this really kind of, I know it's odd to say, but kind of all American family, the kids have really thrived. The, the, the parents, the, the, the mom and the dad work 40 hours a week. The kid works 40 hours a week. They just got a mortgage on their first house. So they're this kind of family that you're really rooting for, but they've also had some really hard things happen. They had a death threat and they had to leave one town for another. Anyway, so I followed them for about a year and that was the series that ended up winning the Pulitzer. So when you say a comic uh, series, I mean, was this funny? You know, that's a good question. Um, yeah, because you think of comic, you think of like Dennis the Menace or all these people <laughs> on the far side. I don't know any non-funny comics. Exactly. I, I, no. I, and, and, you know, one of the things, the reason I like the question so much is that I told the editor at the beginning, 
I want there to be some humor in there because people, it's hard to get fired up to just read about kind of human misery and kind of uh, the, the glum state of affairs of, and, and so we worked really hard to find these small funny moments. Um, like when the kids go to school the first day and it's, it's pajama day and these kids are like, what is going on? Why is everyone, you know, why is everyone dressed in their sleeping, you know? So there's all these kind of little funny moments where I think it, the humor was actually super important to humanize them and make them look real. Um, so no, it wasn't meant to be like gag line funny, but I wanted it to breathe. And you see that in the podcast too with Ned and his story, it's quite serious, but there are these moments that are really funny. I mean, it helps that Ned has a good sense of humor, but these moments, it's like in a horror film, right? If you're watching a horror film and it's all, you know, slasher and you just eventually the, the suspension, the, the, the suspense just drops out. But if you have these little moments where you're like, okay, everything's all right, like things are going well, and then you bring the tension back, that's what really gets you. And that's what I wanted. That's what I really want for all my storytelling. So if somebody wants to look at, uh, what, what is it called? What is the, it's- It's called what? Welcome to the New World. And actually it will be out as a book next month. Um, oh. We expanded the comic and we turned it into a book. And um, yeah, it'll be out in September. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes out for it. For sure, we'll we'll share the link. But if somebody, are they published anywhere now that people yes. could? Yeah, you can see the entire series. If you just look up Welcome to the New World and New York Times, you can scroll through it. And it's actually really fast. One of the frustrating things about the comic was my wife and kids would on Sunday get the Times and they would read it in like, 30 seconds. And it had taken me like the better part of two weeks to write. And I was like, y'all better read that yeah. one more time. Cause that was a lot more, you know, people never realize how much work is in, entailed in these things. Well, is it a strip? Yeah, it's a strip. I mean, it looks like when you look at it, um, you know, you would think that it, you would think that it from afar, that it just looks like the classic comics that we grew up with, wow. you know, in our childhood, but it's, it is nonfiction. Everything that's there is stuff that has been reported and fact-checked um, meticulously. Um, and, and obviously it's, it, it, it's, it got rave reviews. You won this, this massive prize for it. Now you yeah. only, you did this for a year. It's done. You're not still doing it. No, I'm not. It was okay. interesting though. There's actually another similarity between this and Ned's story, which is that it was told in a serialized format. So usually as a journalist, right, I write a story, it comes out, you're done. This is really different because each week the next installment comes out and you're still talking to the people you've written about. And you're thinking, oh my God, do they like it? Do they hate it? Are they going to be, you know, and, and, and that is a, it's, it's a very kind of intense situation because you don't, at least when you have a story come out, it's done. And you're like, well, they liked it or don't. This is like every week you're like, what are they going to think of what I did? And I, of course, I really never share what I've done ahead of time. Um, so it's an act of faith, both on Ned's part, but also on these, the Aldeban family, which is the refugees you know, they had to have faith that I was going to do a, a good job of telling their story. Well, I look forward to seeing it. I mean, it's sad, you know, as you're talking about comics, I grew up reading comic books. I re woke, uh, uh, grew up reading comic strips, the family circles, the Snoopies, the peanuts, everything. And unfortunately I, I get my news online. Now my parents yeah. still get the New York times and the, the Detroit papers. And when I'm over there, they're there, but I, I don't, I don't know if people, uh, appreciate what it used to be. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to 
see that you did this and that you won a great prize for it. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I'll tell you one fun story, which was that um, I knew the day that they were going to announce it because the editor had said, if you're going to get it, you'll know by 5 p.m. this day. And I didn't think it would happen just because it's like, you know, what are the chances? And we we're getting on the plane with my wife and kids. I've got two boys. They're 11 and 13. And um, five o'clock comes. The call doesn't happen. So yeah, whatever, you know, no big. It's 515 and we're just at the check-in with the ticket. And I see the thing come up. It's New York Times. And I'm like, hmm. So I pick up the phone. It's this guy, Jim Dow, is the editor. He says, Jake, how are you? Well, I'm getting on a plane, Jim. And he says, um, well, I'm calling with some extraordinary news. You've just won the Pulitzer Prize. And um, it was actually a surprisingly emotional moment. I think all those years that I was referring to before, where I just kind of eked it out as a freelancer, not know if I was going to pay the make the bills or whatnot. It was like I'd been white knuckling it. And I think at that moment, there was just this disbelief and I, I teared up. My wife thought someone in the family had died and she's what's wrong? And I said, I won the Pulitzer Prize and the, the, the kids hugged me. My wife hugged me and people were like, buddy, you're getting on the plane. And we were and we're all kind of celebrating as we're walking down the, the jetway to the plane. And my little guy turns to me and says, dad, does this mean we're flying first class? <laughs> like, no, son, they're still paying me the same crappy wages they always paid me. But that's um, sounds but was, like my 12 year old. That's uh, that's a good story. So. Uh, now that you win a prize like this, is it like an Academy Award? Is it is, is in journalism? Uh, what has happened since then? How has your career changed? You know, it's funny because you're the same guy you were before you won it, and yet your calls get answered much faster. I teach at Yale. It's funny, and they—I have no problem saying this on the record. They—they—they they, they terribly underpaid me. So I asked for a 400% raise, <laughs> just like I'm going to. And they yeah. agreed immediately. And I told my wife, you, you I asked for too little, you know, but it's like yeah. that, that whole thing is like the way the world, that's the way the world works. It's like you're one guy one minute and then you get the gold shiny star. And then the next minute, you know, people treat you differently. Um, they pay you better. But also there's a segue to here to Ned's story, which is that I felt that I had the ability to tell, often in my, in my career, I've had to convince, 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 let me do a story, trust me to do the story, you know, and it's, it's been a fight. And after I won, I started getting approached by people saying, oh, we have something for you. And I felt like, wow, I really have an opportunity to tell a story that I wanna tell. And um, I don't have to just take the first offer. It's like, you know, it's like a guy all of a sudden has a bunch of different clients or a bunch of different jobs and can be a little bit more picky and choosy a lot more picky and choosy, to be honest. And that was the first time in my career I ever experienced that. And so when I agreed to start working on Ned's story, um, you know, it was very much a sense of like, I could be doing maybe more so than any moment of my career, I could really be doing a whole bunch of things and this is what I wanna do. Um, and that's a very nice way to come into a project versus feeling like I gotta take this work or I'm not gonna, you know, make ends meet. So the podcast Deep Cover, which I be started listening to this week, which is amazing, and you are, you have a really nice way about you telling stories, talking. Um, your delivery is 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 amazing. Um, it's I I you know it's it hasn't been out very long. You have almost two thousand five star reviews uh, on. Uh, 
on Apple, and I know that it's on all the channels. So, do you know how many downloads this thing has uh, in the in the short time it's been out? It's 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 in the millions. Um, yeah. Wow. So I mean, I just found that out. I kind of I got to be honest with you. Sometimes when these things come out, I kind of do one of these because it's like you never know. I mean, you know, things can you can think they're great and they can get panned, and then you can do something you think is like, geez, that's not my best effort. So I kind of didn't look, but then my producer started calling me and saying, okay, like, I know you're got your head in the sand, but this, this shit's going viral. Yeah. That's, I mean, so, okay. Ned Timmons, who's on uh, episode 30 of the open mic show. I, I, before we bring him on, we, we're going to set this up for a little bit. I mean, yeah. I met Ned, he came into my office. He's lives in my town. He's this, uh, you know, uh, old time FBI retired guy. Um, and he's got some crazy, amazing stories, crazy. uh, uh, you know, and kind of took a little bit of credit for bringing down Manuel Noriega. And I'm listening to this in my office. I'm a new podcaster. I've been doing this since, uh, late 2019 and it was a fascinating story. And I only had an hour plus with him, but the fact that you heard his story and said, I could spend a year digging into this. And then the way you do it, and you flew around the world uh, interviewing his contacts, to me was I'm listening to this and thinking, okay, you know, I had the idea, you executed that idea, and I want to know about, like, what was it about him and the story that made you say, I'm going to spend and dedicate the better part of a, a year or more on this story. And then I want to talk, I want to know, you know, teach me and other podcasters and other storytellers, you know, how you were able to, you know, do this and pull it off in such a convincing, uh, great storytelling way, because I have no notes when I'm interviewing these people. I am, my, my theory is I'm just curious and I'm a lawyer, so I've done 25 yeah. plus years of depositions where you have to be curious, but you, you take it to a different level. So, um, I know that was a three part question. It's no, a, I got it's, it. It's I, objectionable, but, uh, I'm going to just turn it over to you about how you learned about Ned and then what made you do this? Yeah. So, uh, Ned and I know a mutual friend, uh, who is, a a producer out in Hollywood named, uh, Jeff Singer. And, uh, Jeff sent me a copy of Ned's, uh, novel. Uh, his 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 memoir. Or it's a memoir. It's really a novel because it's fictionalized, but it's based heavily on the truth. And he said, "Hey, Jake, I think this might interest you." So I read it, and it was a fun read, um, you know. And it had this over the over the top premise that uh, an FBI agent goes undercover, goes into a a biker gang in the in the early '80s, flips a few bikers, infiltrates a massive drug smuggling ring, works his way up to the top. And basically finds out that the that, that the guy at the very top is Manuel Noriega, the dictator in charge in Panama and a top CIA asset. This gets blown up with congressional hearings, which then exposes Noriega, which then leads to the invasion of Panama. I mean, it's it's like it's a crazy tale. <laughs> so I, you know, look, I say this in the podcast and I'll say it now. A lot of my job as a journalist is to sort through the bullshit. And I was immediately intrigued by the premise, but I was skeptical as my profession demands 
it to be. And I'm sure it's the same with being a lawyer. You know, you, you've got to do your due diligence. So I called up Ned and I started talking to him and I made it clear to him that if this was going to work, I was going to need to vet every aspect of his story that was possible. Uh, I was going to need to dig up the agents that he served with. I was going to need to find all the kingpins that were involved in this smuggling operation. And that I was going to need to find court records and FBI records. And then I was going to have to go back to him and make him answer these questions again and again. And I think, so he was like, yes, I can, I'm, I'm on board and I can help you do that because um, I'm a private eye now and I'm very good at tracking people down. And so I was intrigued by that more. And then he introduced me to this guy, Lee Rich, who was one of the kingpins in the smuggling operation. And I went down with Ned and I interviewed Lee Rich and I thought, okay, maybe we can, we can do this, um, but I need someone to fund me. That was the other part. So I found this production company called Pushkin, which is uh, run by Malcolm Gladwell and a guy named Jacob Weisberg. And they said, okay, we're intrigued. We will give you a budget to do this. And that's crucial, right? You need to be able to have the travel budget. That's how I was able to go to Detroit many times, to Hawaii, to the Caymans. But also they hired three producers and a phenomenal fact checker. And that really helped. But I, I have to say the single most important ingredient in all this was Ned. Because A, he had the story the story really began checking out in ways that um, both surprised me, but also gave me more faith. But what I admired about Ned, and I've said this to him many times, is even when I interviewed people whose memories were inconsistent with his, say, I didn't remember it that way, I have a different take on this, I disagree with you. The, in my experience in my 20 plus years of reporting is that often when you go back to people and you confront them with those discrepancies, they get defensive or they even try to steer you away from anyone that would have a narrative that was different from their own. And Ned was not like that at all. He was, he was, he would say, Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I, I see why they might say that, but I disagree for these reasons. And he would introduce me even to people who sometimes had different memories than him or would provide these alternate kind of versions of what happened 30 years ago. And he didn't try to, I never felt like I was being manipulated or controlled by him. Um, and that I have to say is super unusual and it allowed me, you know, at the end I was probing, we go deep with Ned. There's lots of stuff that happens with him in his personal life. And he would say like, Jake, do we need to go there? And, and especially parts of his personal life. And I would say like, Ned, you're undercover, you're in dangerous situations. Uh, you're hanging out with bikers and, you know, drug dealers and you're coming home like, we have to go into this in order for the listener to understand the toll that took on your marriage and personally. And he would kind of roll his eyes. Well, I remember one time we were in his office and he gave me the finger, like you couldn't see it on the audio, but he was basically saying like, F you, you're gonna make me do this. But then he would go there. Um, and so I think that we developed a, a, a trust and a mutual respect um, that I wasn't trying to, you know, screw him or I wasn't trying to make him look bad, but he also respected that I was in a way a fact finder, not unlike he was as an FBI agent. And I had my due diligence and I couldn't shy away from the difficult questions. And in return, I think he respected that and was and was willing to go there. And that that's super unusual. And that's what enabled this really 
kind of over the top tale to be told in a way that holds up as a piece of, of nonfiction. So deep cover took you how long to, uh, investigate and then record? It took me a year and a half all said and done by the time that I mean, multiple trips to Detroit, Hawaii, the Caymans, um, I went down to Maryland. I went down to North Carolina. I was in the swamps. I mean, I went down to where the smugglers were coming in in the swamps, and I got like, and I was down in the swamps. So I went to all these places that Ned. I mean, I basically took his novel as my as my roadmap, and I just said, let's see what's true in here. I want to talk to every single person in this novel. I want to go to every single place and see how it pans out. And and it, you know, that's what we did. And how many episodes is it? It's nine episodes, and the final episode will air on Monday, which means that you now can officially just binge through it. And I actually think that's the best way to listen to it is just to binge it. Uh, and what's the date Monday? Your, August thirty first, I think. August thirty first. Yeah. Just yep. for people who are listening, um, so they'll be able to listen to all nine episodes. So it it feels like a good time to bring uh, the person we've been talking to onto the show. So let's welcome Ned. Timmons to the Open Mic Podcast podcast for a second time. Good afternoon, Ned. Hey, how you guys doing? How did it feel us talking about you for the last twenty minutes? I, w- I was listening. I was watching. You know, <laughs> did you really give him the finger multiple <laughs> probably more, times? Probably more than once. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ned, good to see you again, my friend. Um, for people who want to, you know, hear your whole story, part of your whole story, they could go back and listen to episode thirty. But to get a real in depth version go listen to deep cover nine episodes coming out next monday but ned how was the experience working with jake for the last year and a half um on this podcast well i think it was good to to get the whole story told um a lot of people uh you know i i I got a call from an old fbi retired agent that's a buddy of mine he says nobody knew what you were doing nobody and and lots of times i don't you know i was based out of the detroit division they didn't even know where I was. I was assigned to Tampa. I was assigned to North Carolina, Louisiana, Colorado. Um, I was all over the place. And I don't think that will ever happen again, um, that they will give an agent that much latitude. Uh, but this case was so big that every division wanted me there and they wanted my source there to go over all the evidence. And I think, uh, you know, Unfortunately, the main source is dead. Uh, Jake would have found him interesting, but I think Jake did an incredible job of telling this story. Um, I think when you're out there undercover, you're playing a role, you're, you're acting, and if you screw up, you could die. And I think few people realize that. They think, oh, this undercover is glamorous. It's a uh, you know, Hawaii five O and everything. It's not, it's very stressful. It's very demanding. And you're, you're constantly pushing to make it happen and, uh, and deal with all these smugglers. And, and I think Jake found that even the top smugglers still stay in touch with me. They still, because I was undercover into them, uh, and dealt with them so long, they, they still stay in touch. Uh, I heard from one of the main, I heard from Lee this morning, you know, um, and, and his new book is out, this uh, In Too Deep, uh, which is a book he wrote about his life in this smuggling operation. Um, 
but it, it was interesting. Um, the whole story's never, never been told to the public. And, and obviously Washington was embarrassed because, you know, we first started hearing about Noriega undercover down in the Cayman Islands. And they were talking about the general, they were talking about pineapple face. And finally we realized they're talking about Noriega and they developed the friendship with Noriega after the Cayman banks, the seventh largest banking center in the world could not take all the money they were flying into Cayman, but Panama could. It's, so. Yeah, it's starting to all, all the stories from our episode that we we talked about, and they were, you know, amazing stories. And I love that Jake flew around and, and met everybody and and validated the stories. But the one thing that that one of you two just said about that, or I think you did that that this is not going to happen again for people undercover. You know, when you were telling me the stories, part of the fact that it's so uh, unbelievable, even though it's true is the fact that you really did have full reign to, you know, you didn't have contacts. This is before cell phones. This is, you know, you were on your own down there and you had to make life and death and, and really important decisions without uh, verifying it with your supervisors. Like we see on TV and movies right now, right? Everybody undercover now has yeah. connection with the office, connection with your supervisors, connect, having to run everything by your supervisors to get permission to do the next step. You had none of that. You were a one man operation doing some amazing work. And the fact that we can't do that anymore is, is troubling, right? I mean, you did some really good work on your own. Um, and that's part of the unbelievable, the, the part that was unbelievable. Well, I don't, I don't really know if there's other things going on right now and, and that's the way it works, but you know, they gave me the tools I need, you know, they gave me the cars and access to airplanes and and uh, the latitude to travel down there. You know, we had to get authority out of London, England, to operate in there. And but we they, they trust that they trusted you, Jake. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, can you yeah. put words around that? That do you no, think this is happening today? No, and in <laughs> fact, they um yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I don't think. I don't think that people can appreciate just how cut off from the world that he was. I mean, in fact, we talk about this in one of the episodes. They actually sent another agent down to the Caymans basically just to make sure that he was alive. Um, a woman who I who I interviewed um, who said, yeah, we didn't we had no way of knowing what was going on and whether he was even alive. And so they sent me in. She sees she tells this story, too, where she's down in the Cayman for one day and Lee, who, Lee Rich, who's the kingpin down there says to her and Ned, oh, why don't you go out on this uh, scuba diving trip with us? And they realize that, oh, this may be like in The Godfather where Fredo goes out in the boat and they don't come back. And she said, they, just, they, they said, we can't go in the boat because they may be out to kill us. And she said, I was down in the Cayman for basically one day and the paranoia was overwhelming to me. And here you have Ned down there for much longer periods of time. And in fact, some of the people in his own office didn't even know what he was up to. And he, there's one story and I confirmed, this is a story that I thought, could this possibly be true? And I confirmed it was true. He was down there hanging out at this uh, club that was run by the kingpin, Lee Rich. And um, he's hanging out with a group of Lee's guys, very much trying to blend in, not being exposed. And by total coincidence, another agent from the Detroit office, another FBI agent, gets off the cruise boat with his wife. They're down there on vacation. 
So this agent doesn't know that Ned's undercover. So he sees Ned, they make eye contact and he starts heading over this way. So Ned is like seconds away from being outed by this guy that's gonna say, Ned, you know, use his real name and say, you're on vacation. And Ned says that somehow, <laughs> he says that, the, this guy's wife was very beautiful and the guys he were all watching, their eyes went to this woman in the bikini and Ned managed to make eye contact with his office mate from the bureau and kind of just laser eye into him, you know, shut up. The guy got the vibe that, that something was off and walked away. But to me, that illustrated just the ever-present danger that these unexpected things can happen and he's outed. And if he's outed, there's no backup to call. And so he just lived under this ever present like guillotine that's hanging over his head. Um, and, and it's remarkable to me that he didn't have like a psychotic break, um, down there. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'll ask this question to both of you. I mean, this podcast, which is obviously based on Ned, your true life story, it's, it's wildly successful and entertaining, but why do you think, why do the two of you think it's resonating with millions of people right now? Ned, you want to go first? Well, it, you know, sex, drugs, and violence. It's, uh, it's got everything, and it's true. It, it's not, uh, you know, a TV show, uh, um, NCIS uh, Las Vegas or something, or or Los Angeles or whatever, you know, this really happened. And I think Jake was able to go through and, and verify everything. And, uh, you know, in the Caymans, not only did we, ha you know, we had the danger of the, the smugglers and being undercover where you had no backup, you had no, we knew that the smugglers had, um, sources within the Cayman police, within Cayman law enforcement, and I think even at one point, uh, one of the smugglers talked about uh, Scotland Yard agent warning him on something. Um, the only one that knew that I was there was a specific group of Scotland Yard in London, England. If something happened, you were screwed because all those cops on that island that made pennies were indebted to Lee Rich. He took care of burying their grandparents he took care of them when they needed money he was like a robin hood so even if you got locked up in jail you were in danger and how were you not what is it about you ned and i'm gonna jake i'm gonna get back to you on your answer to that question mm -hmm. but ned what is it about you whether it be from your childhood whether it be whatever that didn't make you paranoid scared mm -hmm. um that allowed you to do this? Because I don't know anybody who could do what you did um, from the stories you told, from the stories Jake told. I mean, what is it about you that allowed this to happen? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it was the ultimate challenge, you know? It, it was uh, the Olympics of undercover. I mean, I, I did a lot of one-day, two-day undercover stuff where, where you got backup, you're wearing a mic, you, you're, you know, you got a SWAT team standing by uh, down there, there was nothing. And as we got into it deeper, we found out, you know, w when this other agent showed up that was with his wife on his honeymoon, Lee knew right away that there was an FBI agent coming on the island. 
And he was warned by the Cayman police and Cayman customs, because when you sign on the island, you sign a form of where you work. And his network was so in-depth that by the time this guy signed that paperwork to come aboard, come ashore on the island and submitted that, that information got back to Lee. I was in the, in the car with Lee before the incident with the agent showing up at the beach club. And he turned to me and he said, hey, there's an FBI agent on the island. And, uh, and, and he said, as a matter of fact, he looks just like you. And uh, I don't know what the resemblance was, but that's where you kind of take a deep, deep breath, you know. So was that a scary moment? Um, I think I think you start looking about what your alternatives are, what, what's what's going to happen. I never saw Lee with a gun, but there was a lot of people that owed him a lot of money. And And your other concern is we started to realize that their guy w- was Noriega. And I was aware that Noriega was a source for the CIA into Castro and into the Russians because the Russians were so dominant in, in Cuba. Well, you get into a real big boy club there and CIA has a lot of operatives out there that they pay one or $200,000 a year to do dirty work here, get in with these guerrillas, go, go wherever, do whatever. Well, if some agent was a little bit rogue and told one of his operatives, uh, your paycheck is in danger because of this guy in the Cayman Islands. Not saying he's an agent or anything, but I mean, you could see what could happen. And, and we were aware of all that, or I was aware of all that. So Interesting. Jake, uh, I mean, it may be obvious question, but what, why do you think uh, there's millions of downloads of your podcast right now? What do you think about this story that's resonating with people? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about that I'm, I was trying to think of the best answer to your question. And I think that, you know, we're, we're in a moment right now where the news, the news is so hard to watch. I mean, there's the COVID, there's the issues of racial injustice, there's the very divisive election. Um, it's, it, you kind of, when you look at the paper in the morning, you kind of got to steal yourself uh, for like a gut punch. And I think that, this is a story that takes place in a different time. It's in the eighties. So there's some nostalgia there and it's just a great yarn of an undercover agent. And in fact, I like to joke, Ned and I are at kind of opposite ends of the, of the, uh, you know, the political spectrum. He's a conservative. I tend to be more liberal. I'm in new England. He's out in Michigan. Um, and we've developed a friendship. So in ways it doesn't matter, but it also never really came up in the story because it, it's not pertinent to this story. Um, and I think in some ways that provides this, this nice escape. And yet you're still learning something that's valuable. Um, we remember, or many of us, I mean, I was a teenager at the time, we remember the invasion of Panama and kind of wondering why, why did we invade Panama? Why did, why did we go down there? And here's this crazy backstory that begins with this guy from Detroit walking into a biker bar and um, flipping uh, an outlaw biker who lets him in on a series of secrets that kind of butterfly effect triggers all these events. So I just think that, that that's, that, 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 that is appealing in this moment. Um, yeah. It certainly sounds like a something, you know, we've mentioned TV. This certainly sounds like a, a movie waiting to happen. Doesn't it? We want George Clooney to play Ned. 
<laughs> I think I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. What do you think about that, Ned? Whatever works, you know. I mean, maybe somebody a little better looking than George. I don't. Uh, uh, that's that's a great idea. Well, hopefully, we'll we'll get to see that uh, on the big screen one day. Um, Jake, or I guess I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Ned this question. Jake, I'm sorry, Ned. What? Why do you think? What is it about Jake's storytelling that's so special? What did you What did you find about him that uh, could teach a guy like me to tell a better story, to do a better interview? What What did you learn from him? Well, I think I think he has a trick to voice infliction, uh, the way he uses his voice uh, to calm people down. And and I, you know, watched several of his interviews, and, and they were they were really good. And uh, he gets people to talk and. And that's what you got to do. You got to get the truth out of them. And, you know, these, I introduced him to motorcycle gangs and female agents and, and whatever. And he could adjust any of them. He could, I mean, we had one motorcycle guy in here that, that, uh, and you know, we're talking about Jake. Uh, yep. That is a dangerous guy. Okay. I mean, he's a bomber. Uh, a killer and whatever. And, and Jake just sat down and made him comfortable. We just decided not to use him, that the risk was too great to, yeah. to even go around him. But I mean, I think that Ned, you and me kind of bonded over that aspect of there's a similarity in our work. You and in, in effect, were doing the same thing when you were an undercover agent, which is that you yourself had to connect. You had to be able to you know, interface with the brass coming in from DC, but you then had to hang out with the bikers and then the kind of preppy playboy and make them trust you and feel at ease around you and talk to you. And, um, and then just as importantly, you had to honor that trust by not screwing them over by, you know, serving justice, but also guys like the biker that you talked about, who was your informant, um, protecting his identity um, and making sure that you didn't just dispose him when he, when he ceased to be useful to you. And that it's one thing to earn trust, uh, to, to, to get someone to trust you. It's another thing to honor that over time. Um, and I think that that was something that we shared in common. I think you saw when I was fact checking, even this biker, this guy who was the, the very violent guy that Ned described, he ended up bailing on us. But before that happened, we spent days going over identifiers, like the smallest identifiers that could possibly give away his identity. And I think Ned looked at me at one point and said, oh, you're basically do the same thing that I'm doing, which is get information, but protect your source. And so I think that at some point there was like, even though I was a journalist and he was an agent, there was like a kind of professional respect there. And the more that trust built, then the more honest Ned was able to become. And because it was a year and a half, that level of honesty and that at the at the center of this is this connection I have with with Ned. And um, yeah, interesting. No, I think I think that's true. And and I think Jake and I talked about when you're undercover, you've got the lowest level of, of bail thrower out there. The the guy that's in the bottom of a barge that just brought in three hundred thousand pounds of weed, and he's wading around in the water and snakes and and whatever to deal with him and you deal with him differently than you do somebody like a Lee Rich. Um, I think you, you change your whole demeanor and whatever, and you deal with the motorcycle gang differently than, than how you deal with the upper echelon, the, the, 
the Kalish, the the rich, and uh, you know when when we were there, we we were dealing with Heather Lockler. Uh, I never met Ringo Starr, but Heather Lockler, Tommy Lee, uh, and a bunch of entertainers that were hanging around with Lee because I think Lee financed a lot of their expenses. I don't know, but I mean there was some draw there, and and you have to change your whole uh, undercover persona. You you you've got to be able to immediately change the role that you're playing. I just want to say one other shout out, Kevin, if I can. Um, the other just person that was so important in this narrative was Ned's ex-wife, Kathy, um, who was also an FBI agent. And Ned has maintained a, a very good relationship with Kathy over the years. And at some point I reached out to Kathy and began interviewing her. And she had a phenomenal perspective on this, both because she saw Ned as a husband and she saw what he was bringing home with him, uh, literally some of the sketchy characters he was bringing home, but also all the stress and, and that he was getting in the field. But she also had the perspective of an FBI agent. And she's almost, she's the co, in a way, the co-narrator of this story. And in a way, this is really a story about a marriage. Um, it's a marriage of two uh, Michigan police officers who make it into the FBI, and one of them gets drawn to the biggest undercover operation ever, and the other one is trying to kind of keep him afloat, to keep Ned grounded, even when they run off into hiding because Ned's identity has been outed. It's Kathy who's there really trying to kind of hold them together. Um, and that storyline of the marriage, to me, is the really po most powerful story in this narrative. Um, and, and Kathy, in uh, the podcast does a marvelous job of being articulate and insightful and also just being deeply human about the toll that this took on them. So, um, you know, that was another kind of stroke of luck on my part as a storyteller that I found this wonderful kind of sidekick to Ned, which was his wife. Well, that's, that's what makes you an excellent journalist, obviously. Uh, Jake, I, I'm also being told that, uh, you have a movie coming out uh, called Secrets of the Temple, which is a, a story you did about an ancient temple where they discovered $20 billion uh, of treasure. Um, is that, when's that coming out? I don't know. I'm, I'm still waiting for the check for that one. Um, as I was telling Ned, they, um, it, it's in so many of these stories get picked up in development and then Hollywood sits on them and sits on them. Um, and we don't know whether they'll get made. Um, okay. So that one is, I'd say, still in the development stage. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I was telling Ned, there's, there's, there's always interest from Hollywood, but it's kind of like, don't hold your breath. And, um, you know, I told Ned from the beginning, I said, I think this could be a great movie or a TV series, but I, have, I can't make that happen. What I can tell you is that I will turn over every stone and work my ass off to make this the best possible piece of nonfiction that's possible. And and Ned, I think, kind of said, okay, let's do it. And that's what we did. Ned, are you ready for the big screen in Hollywood? <laughs> like Jake said, show me the check. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that's a great place to uh, end this fabulous interview. Uh, not my interview skills. You guys are, are, are uh, the story here. Um, Jake, I, I hope everybody keeps listening to Deep Cover. Uh, Ned, I hope your story is made and you get a big, huge check uh, for, for your life's work, for doing such good work and being a good friend to Open Mic Podcast. Uh, really appreciate you coming back on. And Jake, thank you so much for your time today.
Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for watching Open Mic. Today we had Jake Halpernon and Ned Timmons, who you will recognize from episode 30 of Open Mic. Really interesting stories. Jake is a great author, uh, podcaster, won the Pearl of Surprises you heard. Uh, if you like this episode, please comment, share it, subscribe to our podcast, and let us know uh, what else you'd like to hear from Open Mic. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.